thing. But we, we, we love each other, and we love this church, and we love what God is doing with it. So for us, it is just a joy to be here. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you open up to the book of James. As we're kind of going through that, um, we're in James chapter 4 is where we're going to begin. Been verse 1. Before we get into that, there was a title of uh, a news article back in the 1980s that simply said this, Prayer Hit List. And uh, the Christian leaders were urging their supporters to pray for their political foes at this time. And on these prayer hit lists were states' attorneys general, Supreme Court justices, and usually the the offending person had taken a political position that was in opposition that clashed with their religious beliefs. And so on June 1st in 1986, one religious leader, R.L. Hymers, he was the founding pastor of the Baptist Tabernacle of Los Angeles, He was practicing these prayer hit lists, and he transitioned them into prayers for death. And he ordered an airplane to carry behind it this banner that was written out there, just as Supreme Court Justice William J. Brennan was going to speak at a pro-abortion demonstration. And so this plane went overhead, and it trailed behind it this message. Pray for death, baby killer, Brennan. Wow. You know, if you you think about all of this, and those who explained their practice said that their prayers, at first they aimed at praying for the political leaders to want to, to reform their political positions. That wasn't working because they weren't repenting, so they upped their prayer list to pray that their political foes would, uh, if, if they would not repent, that God then would remove them from their position. And if all intercession failed, then they would begin to pray that God would take them out. And they began to pray for their deaths. Scripture does not challenge us to do that. Matter of fact, Scripture urges a total different way. Listen to what it says in, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, Godly and dignified in every way. And it seems that that is more in accord with what Scripture has to say, that believers should pray for the spiritual well-being and for the spiritual help and guidance of our leaders within our nation, rather than seeking to remove them by death. Most Christians don't take the, what we call the imprecatory psalms and apply them today. Because as you read some of the Psalms, you'll read that, such as is Psalm 28, verses 3 through 5, they're praying for their enemies that God would, in essence, take them out and pray for their death. The prayer, however, of these persecuted Christians in the book of Acts, chapter 4, 
Instead of praying for their political enemies that they should die, they began to pray for boldness that they would speak and preach the gospel message in the face of persecution. And so we have this, this bold statement that the church was making. In, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus commands us with these words. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It goes a little bit different than what these prayers of death were all about in this hit list. Using a prayer hit list sounds very like a very unusual Christianity, but yet it, it has taken place for many times. James' description of his leaders in this book, he, he, he talks about them and he, he presents a very unusual group of people here in this letter that profess to be Christians, and yet when we look at him, we think, surely his, his description isn't about the people in the church, is it? It's, it's got to be somebody who's not within the church because he begins talking about them, about their, their, their lifestyles that go against it. As a result, he says, they fought, they quarreled, they coveted, they killed over their desires. Listen to what he says in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. You do not have, he says, because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, his readers were claiming to be Christians, but they had the same spirit as the unchristian world in which they were living within. Those that were their unconverted neighbors. They were dominated, he's saying, by self-centeredness, by this self-will which pursued their own pleasures, their own power, and their own positions of authority and the prominence. So James begins to rebuke them here in chapter 4. We'll get into it in just a moment. He wants them to know that they've got to stop living in their sinful manner and begin to live the manner in which Christ wants us to live. And he warned those, and it kind of applies to those who use hit lists and prayers as a mean of removing people from their positions of power that stand in opposition to the church. So I need us to understand this. There is a danger in living without God. There is a great and a grave danger of living without God. God wants his people to live with a conscious commitment to follow Christ no matter what the cost are. And so this morning, I want us to examine a few dangers of living outside the will of God if we're trying to live for ourselves. So the first one is this. It's, it's having this self-centered life. It suppresses our prayer is what James is going to tell us. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he says, but, but what causes quarrels and, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he begins with two rhetorical questions that the answer, they know what the answer is. And, and he tried to identify the source of the problems that the church is having there as James is writing to them. He, he mentions you fight and you quarrel. And he puts those uh, in, in, that, in that verse there, and he says that they desire uh, that battles within us bring these up. You remember when he spoke to us in James chapter 1 at verse 14 and 15, he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured, how? And enticed by his own desires. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, give birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we understand that what's happening here is in the church, they're allowing their desires to be worldly, and they're starting to develop something that's really ungodly in them. He wants to confront this. Those desires can impact a church in a devastating way, and they can honestly destroy a church. James uses the plural form when he says the words fights and quarrels, indicating to me that this is not a one-time event, but this is something that continues to go on and on and on within the church, that they're fighting with each other and they're quarreling with each other over and over again. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. There's a lot of foolish things that people focus on in the church. The color of the carpet. <laughs> um, the clothing and the style in which people wear. The, the type of music that we're performing and singing to. And, and, and so we can go on and on and on. And their foolishness, these little controversies, and all they do is they develop difficulties that create destruction. So, the Greek word that is translated desires is where we get our word hedonism. That's what it is. Hedonon is the Greek word that's used here. And that means it's a philosophy that the chief purpose of living is to promote, promote self, to do things for me. Romans tells us in chapter 7, verses 14 through 21, that we know that the law is spiritual. But I'm of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. Now listen to what he says. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. It is no longer I who do it. Oh no, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Now if I do not do what I do, if I do, <laughs> if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand. You see, what Paul is saying, there's a struggle inside each one of us. And we know what we should be doing, but, you know, I should be at church today, but, man, it'd be a great day to be out fishing. Man, it's cool and chill, and the fish are probably looking for something. It'd be great to be. And so, instead of going to church, we go and do the fishing. Because our desires are driving us, even though what we know we ought to do we're avoiding it. And Paul says, ultimately what it comes down to is it's the sin that's within me and those desires that I have of the flesh that drive me away from the spiritual things that I know God wants in me. So Christians will never be free from this evil influence of sin within us, this, even the subtle desires that we have. But by God's grace, we can escape it and we can overcome in verse 2, we see that our earthly desires, they motivate us to this destructive behavior James is telling us here. 
It, it points out that the fighting and the quarreling, those are the results of the desires that we have and that we're not getting them. So we quarrel and we fight and we envy and we, 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 because we don't obtain those things, we start to point out somebody else's problems. Our passions, he says, we're wanting to spend it on our own passions. The passions, another time, it's translated lusts. It's frequently used within the New Testament in a bad sense to describe the act of coveting somebody else's possessions and their things. And we can't get them, so what do we do? We steal it. And he uses this word, murder. And, and as I read that, I wonder, is, is, is the church, are they actually killing each other? I mean, is that what it has gotten down to? That even within this body of Christ where there's supposed to be love abounding, are they murdering each other because of their own passions? I mean, that's a question I think we have to ask. I, I don't think that it's exactly that they're killing one another that way. I mean, if they were, Rome would have swooped in and, and taken care of them real quick. Because it's, it's you know, you're not going to let sin like murder just continue. But I think it's, it's quite possible the way that Jesus is describing murder as well when he speaks to us in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. He says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, they use those bad words, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has life abiding in him. We know that what has taken place in the church that James is writing to is they have developed a hatred in them so much that they, if they could get away with it, they probably would murder another brother in Christ. All because they're not getting what they want. Hatred and jealousy produce greed and worldliness and, and are potential acts of murder because they can lead to actual murder. When somebody finally has had enough, then they commit the crime. Therefore, James is, is accusing his Christians not necessarily of actual murder, but of showing them that their fights and their quarrels are leading them down that path so that they themselves will kill and devour one another. Now, at the end of verse 2, James outlines the startling truth that his readers lacked what they sought because they failed to ask God. You don't get what you want because you're not asking God, he says. And the reason behind it, the stifling of their prayers, is because they're being so self-centered. The Scripture suggests that God listens to the prayers of the righteous rather than the selfish. 1 John 3, 21-22 says, Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, that's where it gets down to, doesn't it? Those desires, they, they're, they're birthed in our heart. Jesus says that it's not what goes into a man that makes him sinful, but it's what comes out of his heart that makes him sinful. And so John says, Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandment and do what pleases him. And those who are upright in life who are trying to live a righteous lifestyle, 
John tells us again, he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Yet, while he hears our prayers, at times he does not give us the answer that we want. Matter of fact, sometimes it's the answer that we don't want, but it's the answer that we need. Paul understood that even though he wanted healing from what he calls his thorn in the flesh, God says, my grace is sufficient. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 10. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, and a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, and therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, sometimes when we pray to God to remove things from our lives, or we pray Him to give things in our lives, He says, no, my grace is sufficient, just as it was for Paul. I need to allow that to stay in your life so that Satan can harass you to keep you from becoming so arrogant. Because our natural tendency is to become arrogant, to become thinking only about me. And James says, we've got to stop that because when we're being self-centered, even our prayers are being stifled. The second thing that we discover is this self-centered living displeases God. So in James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we go on. And he says this, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scriptures say, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." In these verses, James is confronting his readers about their arrogance, about their spiritual unfaithfulness to God, and how they have been living in opposition. He actually calls them adulteresses. He's saying they have, they have adulterated the relationship that he has with them, and they've begun to love somebody else instead of him. And who is that? Themselves. He implies that friendship with this world is a deliberate choice to turn away from a loving God. It's an act of defiance and rebellion, and, and we might even classify it as, as becoming a traitor to the kingdom of God. Their willingness to embrace the world's values and the godless lifestyle and agenda has damaged their relationship with God and can do the same thing to us if we follow in their footsteps. Listen to what John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. He says, Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, 
the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. A person cannot be loyal to God and controlled by the worldliness at the same time. Matter of fact, Christians cannot peacefully coexist. You've seen that bumper sticker, haven't you? We can't. We cannot coexist with this world, even if the bumper sticker says so. We are to be set apart from the world. Verses 4 and 5 confirm that friendship with the world and with God, it's impossible. You can't love both. So let's define what James means when he says the word world. It's the same thing that Paul and and John mean when they use the word world. This word world, cosmos, is to them the system of evil that's controlled by Satan. It includes all that is wicked and opposed to God on this earth. That's what they mean. You cannot love the world. It's not you can't love this planet. No, you cannot love the system of philosophy of life that this world presents. Because that kind of life is created by Satan. James is thinking especially about the pleasures that lure men's hearts away from God and to themselves. And by its very nature then, friendship to the world is hatred towards God. The person who deliberately chooses to be a friend of the world, by that choice, becomes an enemy of God. That's what James is telling us. We cannot love this world that way. So in verses 4 and 5, indicate that the believer who is a friend of this world is guilty of the spiritual adultery. And although his love and his devotion belong to God, he is falling in love with himself and with the world. And it's natural then for verse 5 then to speak about God's jealousy for his people. Because he has placed his spirit within his people, and now they're taking that spirit with them into an adulterous relationship. And God does not want that. He's jealous for us to love him. And while God may become heavy demands upon us and our loyalty and our faithfulness, he also provides the grace for us to comply with those demands. And so James quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, here in verse 6. He talks about God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. The proud are those who turn their hearts away from God and instead turn it to evil. And the humble, on the other hand, they understand it and they practice total dependence upon God rather than by their own means. So James is assuring his believers, and that these believers here, that even though they might fall into this temporary wandering, are basically humble if they recognize that salvation that they need only comes from God. They're not going to gain it by anything else in this world. So God resists the proud by opposing those who fail to follow him. He foils their plans and he frustrates all of their dreams. And God doesn't want us to live our lives being dominated by materialism. He doesn't want us to live a life and search for prestige or selfish ambition or deliberate forgetfulness that God is around. His aim is that we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these things are added. Jesus tells us that in that sermon as well in Matthew chapter 6. What it comes down to is this, is that God completely demands loyalty and complete loyalty from His people. And He provides the grace for us to achieve it. The third danger that we need to avoid is this, that self-centered living, it also requires repentance. 
That's what we, dif- we discover. You have to repent. So verses 7 through 10, Paul or James goes on, he says, Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So, James issues a series of ten imperative commands in this little section. Ten things that he says you must do. And these are, these are those ten commands. He, he says you need to submit, you need to resist, you need to draw near, you need to cleanse, you need to purify, you need to be wretched, you need to mourn and weep, you need to be turned, and you need to be humbled. So submit to God calls us to, the, to subject our wills to His will. Submission is not the same as obedience. Let me understand that. Submission is not the same as obedience. Matter of fact, submission is the one that leads to obedience. When we submit to Him, then we become obedient. The negative side of that command, if we're going to submit to God, means that we also have to resist the devil. Resistance is a military word that Christians need to stand their ground. I get this image of people playing tug-of-war. And so they're resisting, so they've got a hold of that rope, even though Satan's on the other end pulling it. They are doing their best to not let him pull them their direction. We're resisting it. And so we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul writes this to the church. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay, you're back on that rope again, and you and Satan are playing that tug of war. He wants you to sin, and you want to remain righteous. The thing is, God only permits Satan the strength that you can still pull him over the line but if you don't think you can do that he simply says let go the rope's still there and one day you'll come back and pick it up again but until that time he gives you the ability to even escape the temptations we don't have to fall to sin we can overcome it and if we obey these commands that he's given us God promises us that the devil then will flee from us and his, our resistance to him is just the same as what Christ resisted him in the wilderness for those 40 days when he went to them and he tempted him. And Jesus came back with scripture after scripture after scripture and finally Satan couldn't combat it, so he left him. And he can do the same thing to us. Now another command is this, to draw near to God. We are to draw near to Him. It involves approaching God in worship and in commitment. And those who approach God discovers that as we get nearer to Him, He comes nearer to us. Because He wants that relationship with us. And then we're told to cleanse our hands. 
And it uses the language of the religious ceremonies that were founded in Exodus chapter 30. So they would have to go and always wash their hands for, for purification rites to cleanse themselves before they did certain things in regards to worship. But today we cleanse our hands not by going and washing them under a, a holy water, so to speak. We cleanse our hands by withdrawing them from evil wrongdoings those actions so perhaps obedience to the command that he's calling us to draw near to God and to cleanse our hands what he's saying is get rid of all the moral filth in your life that's on the external that everybody notices but then he says purify your hearts that's the inner purification that we need because that's where our sin and our desires come from. So the language that is used here is just dripping with the words from Psalm 24. And I want to read that Psalm, verses 3 and 4. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. So to be pure in heart is to reject the double-mindedness that James talks about over and over within his book in this letter. It's to abandon the attempts to befriend God and befriending the world, and, and it gains this purity by requiring repentance, that we surrender ourselves to Him. Then he challenges us to do this, these three things. He says, be wretched, mourn, and weep. Those three words are typical words that are used in humbling ourselves before God and under His judgment. Being wretched calls for the sinner to experience a deep feeling of shame because of what we have done and that God has observed it. Mourning and weeping are these outward evidences of that shame that we have experienced in the sense of grief. And it is so deeply felt that it moves us even to tears because of what we have done. Then he uses another word. He says we are to turn we are to be turned and to turn our laughter and into mourning and turn our joy into gloom you see the foolish actions that we have in life they're taking us further away from God and we need to recognize that we have broken this relationship with him and there needs to be a repentance from it there needs to be a turning around to it and so instead of celebrating all the cheerfulness of the things within this world we recognize how awful it is and we feel the shame and so we're wretched and we mourn and we weep for what we have done against God. See, the frivolous life becomes gloomy when we realize their foolish choices have brought them into nothing but judgment from God. Laughter and joy are not evil. However, the moment when we meet God as sinners, those things that used to bring forth our laughter and our joy they disappear because he introduces us to a real joy, to a real love, a real life, and it's in Jesus Christ. And James calls his readers double-minded because they don't know which way they're going to follow. The final appeal that he throws here in these verses is this command, but yet it's also a promise. He challenges us to be, be humble before God. And that mandate of voluntarily turning to God in respect and in submission, when we respond with insight provided by the Holy Spirit, we see our unworthiness and we see God's righteousness and His holiness and, and we seek that He would forgive us of the things that we have done wrong and we humble ourselves. And then all of a sudden this, He lifts us up and He exalts us. 
that involves the moral and the spiritual power to live a life as He desires us to live it. It may also provide some hopeful encouragement for us about this glorious future that He's going to give to us. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time He may exalt you. The final danger that we have to see in this is that self-centered living, it produces vilification of other people. We begin to talk bad about them. So listen to what it says in verse 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? See, the warning here in verse 11 and 12 goes out of the rebuke of pride of our own life. And it calls us to be humble because in humility we surrender ourselves and everything to Christ. Verse 11 prohibits this, this slander, this villainous talk, and this insult that Christians have against each other. And so speaking of evil against your brother in Christ is intended to inflame other people against them as well. And James says we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't talk about bad about one another. Because all that does is it makes the church become destructive. For Christians to malign other believers is living a contradiction to how we should be as a close family of Christ. So the slanderous Christian faces two charges. First, the one who practices this speaks against the law of God and the law of love. And that law is this in Leviticus 19 verse 8. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall judge your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Christians are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the slanderous vilifying of our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ should not be done. We should not observe it at all. And so verse 13 tells us that, that God is the only lawgiver and judge. It is not us. We're, we cannot set ourselves above it. And He's the only one who can save, and He's the only one who can destroy as well. Only God has the ability to enforce His laws and carry out His purposes. We cannot do that. So we should not defame other people around us, especially those within the church. Our calling is to respond in supportive love rather than criticism and hatred. Now to sum all of this up, James is challenging Christians to examine their attitudes. We need to look at our own hearts and see where we are in all of this. And as we examine ourselves, we should avoid becoming self-centered. And, and, and that's what the world encourages us to do. And we should adopt instead the instructions of a, a humble lifestyle that Jesus wants us to live. Rather than having a prayer hit list that seeks to destroy our enemies, maybe we ought to adopt a prayer hit list that redeems our enemies. I want you to watch this video. What a different prayer list it is. From hit list to love list. We need to love. I don't know where you are if you've got an enemy list as well that you're praying against, but we need to pray for that salvation. We're going to have our invitation for you. And if you need to make a decision for Christ to change your heart, 
to surrender it to Him, to submit to His will, man, today's a good day to do that. Let's stand together.